Do you remember the feeling of disappointment or maybe even disillusionment when you found out that someone that you had once previously and deeply admired turned out to be just as deeply flawed? Do you remember that feeling? As Americans, I think we have a propensity for hero worship as part of our cultural makeup to tune into late night talk shows or into morning radio programs or to weekly podcasts and watch and listen to our favorite politicians or artists or athletes or intellectuals. We love to hear them be interviewed. We love to, to lift them up as, as, as great beacons of the hope of the future. And before you know it, we're praising the ground they walk on. But in recent years though, we have been scandalized time and again when new information comes to light about these people that we previously thought the world of. Scandals revolving around abuse of power, the twisting of the truth, substance abuse, money mismanagement, and all sorts of infidelities and adulteries. Now, that's hard enough to see in people that you like out in the world. But for us as Christians, some of those that have hit us the hardest in recent years, I dare say, are when we find out that pastors and preachers, theologians and missionaries were not what we thought. That their sins were worse than we had previously imagined. That their shames were carried on in secret and covered up for a long time. Maybe some of those things never even repented of. But perhaps it's at this exact juncture and a time and place in which we are seeing more and more, I think, in our world just how sinful people can be, especially people that ought to know better. Perhaps it's exactly at this juncture that a passage like today's can provide us with so much comfort. Because here we have Paul. Paul, of all people. He is a hero of the Christian faith. He's one of the great pillars of the church. He's an apostle to us Gentiles. Dare I say, one of the reasons we're here today is because of Paul's mission to our forebearers many years ago. He is part of God's providential plan to graft us as outsiders into the covenant people of Israel. This Paul is one who has suffered a wide array of persecutions and imprisonment for the sake of the Gospel, and yet, although that's Paul's character, Paul sees himself as fundamentally imperfect. He sees himself as someone that's even weak, if not lacking in the faith. Even though he is, to our eyes, one of its great heroes. And yet, Paul's assessment of himself is much lower than we'd ever assess him. And so Paul, I believe, displays some otherworldly wisdom in his letter, not only to the Philippians, but to us all these centuries later. Whereas we tend to want to justify sinners, you know, when we see Christians that are, uh, have done such atrocious things, we want to tend to justify um, what they've done by saying, but look at the good they've done in the world. We try to minimize their sin and their scandal But Paul shows us a different route forward. Paul shows us instead that we should take our sin deadly seriously. 
That we shouldn't minimize it to win some culture war or religious crusade, but we should take our sin so seriously because we get to show off the infinitely more glorious grace there is to be had in the Gospel of Jesus Christ to us. See, where we want to try to make the church look good, make Christian leaders look good, Paul knows better than that. He says, in fact, being honest about what the church is, a collection of broken sinners coming together and a life of repentance doesn't make us look good, but that's not the point. It's to make the Gospel and the grace and the person and the work of Jesus Christ all the more beautiful. See, it places the emphasis on Jesus, not on us. It places the emphasis on His work, not on ours. And so Paul demonstrates that the ideal Christian life is not one where we're good evangelicals and we never say a bad word in public um, and we never uh, get mixed up in any sort. We never, nobody ever catches us going to an R-rated movie or um, uh, you know, we're polite and nice people, but underneath all that we're mean and, and vicious and we talk back to each other and gossip and all that. That's not the ideal Christian life. <laughs> to be a religious hypocrite. The ideal Christian life is not one that buries or ignores or just passes over sin. The ideal Christian life is one that lives honestly between the cross of Jesus Christ and the past and the crown of His resurrection going forward. Now just as a brief review, Paul is writing to a beleaguered church that has been facing immense cultural and political pressure. Does that sound familiar to you? A small church that has gone through a lot in recent days, that is, is growing to their eyes weaker, less institutionally powerful, has more enemies to deal with, a lot of political scandals that they're supposed to be interested in, involved in, a lot of culture wars that they're supposed to have an opinion about, that's the people to who Paul is writing. That's good news for us. And they're suffering for their love of Jesus. I, I read a pastor just the other day say, do you feel as if in your Christian life, as you try to be faithful to the Gospel, it makes you more and more unpopular with pretty much every group around you. He says, if you feel that way, what your experience is the Christian life lived out. You're not doing something wrong. You're doing something fundamentally right. Because the way this world works is always about um, uh, seeking after power or fame or glory, taking sides against people. But a Christian person that comes to bear the grace of Jesus Christ to all sinners to welcome anybody into the fellowship of God, no matter how heinous their backstory is, no matter how evil and abusive they were before, no matter how lowly and oppressed they were before, but to wipe that slate clean and say all are equal before the foot of the cross, that's not going to make you popular with anyone. And yet, as they are suffering for their love of Jesus, which has moved them to be kind and generous and welcoming to one another, this has brought them so much joy and peace in their lives. And yet, 
it's also costing them tremendously. It costs them financially. It costs them socially. It costs them politically because they are no longer protected people. They're no longer safe in their own regions. They're no longer first-class citizens. But they're moving down the ladder. And yet, despite this, Paul is able to say, with all honesty and all authority, his heart's singular desire is to know Jesus and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. That is what Paul looks forward to in this life. After 30 years of Christian life, give or take a few at this point, after countless trials and tribulations, Paul's greatest longing, the thing he still hopes for the most, is to press deeper and deeper into his personal, experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. To not just know Jesus on a surface level, on a Sunday morning only level, but to know every contour of not only His resurrection power, but also His sufferings and death on the cross. Now don't miss this church. Don't overlook what I just said. To know Jesus, to be in relationship Him, to really know Him as Lord and Savior is not only knowing Him in the power of His resurrection. It's not only knowing Him when things are all good and happy and you're on top. Paul says it's also to know Him in the midst of His suffering and death. To know Jesus is to know Him through thick and thin. To know Him when He is giving Himself over for the sake of ungrateful sinners. Just as it is to know Him when He is glorified and exalted and puts everything in subjection under His feet. And our very prosperity gospel-driven culture, and we like to say, oh, you know, we like to say, oh, Kenneth Copeland and, and Joel Osteen, uh, you know, we pick those people out as, you know, prosperity gospel preachers, and they are. But I'm afraid their prosperity mindset has sunk deep into the churches, uh, that, uh, profess an orthodox faith. It, that kind of thinking, that if we love God, everything in this world is going to go our way is deeply embedded in evangelicalism. We think that everyone should bow over in deference to us. That, that people should just stand aside as we walk by. But that is not the thinking of the foremost apostle of Jesus Christ. 30 years into his ministry, when he has got more things on his resume than we could ever imagine, he still says, let me know more intimately what it is to suffer alongside Jesus. And so we see in these first two verses, Paul speaking about this so honestly, what this looks like in practice. 
He begins with this, a perhaps somewhat startling confession to us. He says, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort, make every effort, desperately clinging on and, and taking hold of this promise because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I don't even consider myself to have taken hold of it. Paul! We're not talking about just somebody that darkens the door of a church on Christmas and Easter. We're not talking about a new convert to the faith. We're talking about somebody that has suffered so immensely that has racked his body and mind and status and soul and everything for Jesus Christ. He says, I don't even feel like I've gotten a hold of the Gospel. Now, I can't speak for you. But to hear Paul say this honestly, that he hasn't reached his goal, that he's not perfect, that he is still desperately striving to take hold of Jesus by faith, well, that's a bit scary to me. If that's how Paul feels with all the things he's done for the Lord, that puts me in a bad situation. I don't know about you, but for me, it does. This is Paul we're talking about. Undeniably the greatest of the apostles. A theologian supreme, the missionary par excellence, and his honest assessment of himself. While Jesus Christ has taken hold of him, he hasn't totally taken a hold of Jesus Christ back. Now, a large part of this letter has been having the mind of Jesus Christ. That's been a big emphasis in Philippians for us. Paul has told us to have this mind in yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to give us this great hymn of Christ where we see that it's a mind that's not only of joy in suffering, but of a mind of humility in every moment of life. And so Paul then is able to realistically, humbly self-assess himself. Because he's not dependent on his good works or his right doctrine to be united to Jesus. Now, maybe let's take a step back here. We are Roman Catholic friends. We like to say, well, they're very much into good works and the way they think of saints is it's like a super Christian that does a lot of good things and is unusually pious. Now, we don't think that way. But I know when we read about Paul or John or Peter or any of these people, I know in our mind, or when, hey, if we're honest, we're reading Spurgeon or Edwards or Calvin or whoever, whoever's your favorite guy. We tend to put them in a different stratum than we do ourselves. That they're somehow superior to us. That they're better than us in some way. And that so that there's almost a way in which they should be able to depend. I know we don't say it out loud, but we, we think, well, because they're good works, they're good theology, they're good with the Lord. But that is diametrically opposed to what Paul is saying here. It is not his good works. It is not his right doctrine. It is instead that he has been taken hold of by Jesus. 
that unites him to the life of God. Paul has not grasped on to Jesus after all these years. Not fully. He doesn't fully understand Him. He doesn't fully obey Him. But that doesn't matter because Jesus has fully taken hold of Paul. And that is our hope too, folks. Paul is able to rely on Jesus' goodness. Not his own goodness. He's able to rely on Jesus' sinless life. Not his own sinful life. He's able to rely on Jesus' grace and His atoning death so that Paul, despite his shortcomings, can press forward in the Christian life with nothing but hope and happiness. Spurgeon said of all this, he says, Paul had not yet reached his ideal of what a Christian might be. He had not yet obtained from Christ all that he expected to obtain. He was not sitting down to rest, but he was still hurrying on reaching after something that was yet beyond him. He could not say, like that rich man in the Gospel of Luke, soul, take your ease. You have much goods laid up for many years. Not even Paul could say that. But he still felt his own spiritual poverty. And he cried, not that I have already reached the goal or am perfect, but that he would continue reaching. Now again, let's be careful here. Paul is not saying uh, that he's not addressing himself humbly and assessing himself as, as, um, as not obtained and said, well, if I just try a little harder, if I reach a little further, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that there is no end to the reaching, to, 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 to following after Jesus. There is no point at which a person on this earth I think, or even in glory, could say they have attained the full uh, uh, perfection, the full status that they should have in Jesus. Paul's point is that because Christ holds on to Him, He can freely always be reaching after Christ. He can always be doing more, not to earn His salvation, but because He has already in Christ been saved. I think that sets a goal for us. It sets an example for us to Christians. There's always something we can be doing to follow after Jesus. To faithfully serve Him in a way. But it takes the burden off of us of thinking that our striving, our reaching, our trying is the thing that saves us. But what then is Paul reaching for? We read in verses 13 through 14. But what thing I do, I forget what is behind and reach forward towards what is ahead. So what's ahead? I pursue my goal, the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Paul says he forgets what's behind him. All of what's behind him. His mistakes and his glories. His sins and his triumphs. And he reaches ahead instead for God's heavenly call from the future, which are the promises of Jesus Christ. Salvation and resurrection and glorification to ages unending. That is what Paul is looking for. 
Church, I wonder what it would be like for us if we were really able to follow the Apostles' example in this. That we wouldn't find ourselves so weighed down by the past. For ourselves, we would not agonize over memorializing our accomplishments to make sure people know just how good and obedient we've been. That we wouldn't be weighed down by that. And for others, we wouldn't be so quick to dredge up their failures that we wouldn't constantly be going back to the past to show how people around us aren't as good as us but also vice versa. That we wouldn't lionize others in the past as if they're somehow faultless. And that we wouldn't look to our past and feel nothing but self-deprecation and despair. Paul is saying this, whatever is in the past, both good and bad, leave it at the foot of the bloody, cleansing, saving work of the cross. Let the cross be your past. Let the cross be the past for your brother and sister in Christ. Nothing good that you've done, nothing bad that you've done. Everything falls flat before the face of the cross of Calvary. In fact, Paul's wisdom to us in verses 15 and 16, his life's, or his greatest life advice, is to let the event of the cross, what happened at Golgotha, be the singular thing that defines who we are and what we will do going forward. The cross behind us. This is how spiritually mature people are to live. When they look to the past, they don't look for their good, they don't look for the ills of others, they look to the cross in humility and joy. And when they do that, they are both compelled and propelled forward exclusively by what Christ did for us and His atoning work. But Paul is a realist too. He says this is what mature Christians do. They're not people that get hung up on anything else except the work of Calvary for us. But Paul, as much as he is a realist, is a compassionate one at that. If you think life can be lived any other way, if you're a Christian that thinks you can cling to your good works, that you can hoist yourself up by your good theology, well, Paul says, well, in good time, God will reveal to you what you really ought to know. I actually love the way that he says this. What a needed word that is in our world today. And all of my life, I have never seen such a fierce and angry and embittered theological policing go on in the world like I see that today. Christians are constantly writing blogs and tweets and Facebook posts and whatever else, taking umbrage with every other Christian for every little thing. How we celebrate communion what our uh, uh, mode of baptism is like, what style of music we have in our worship, what devotional books we read, the ways in which we engage with the public square, and yet Paul says to all of us patiently, God will reveal what's right to you in His time. 
Paul, the apostle, the, the writer of, of majority of the New Testament is patient with Christians that don't have it all together yet. I think we could take a page out of his book, maybe. Maybe we don't need to constantly be checking in on other people and, and denouncing them if, if they don't get it like we do. Maybe we can just not worry about that and leave that up to God and His providence. Maybe what we can do is be like Paul instead that prays for those people, that encourages those people, that offers a word of admonition, a word of exhortation, and then leaves the rest of it to God. Oh, what a wonderful and gracious attitude for Christians to have that we wouldn't be constantly fretting over whether, what others are doing and thinking. Just leave it up to God and His sovereignty. I need to hear this as much as anybody. I see what people say and do and how they act, and it stresses me out. But what if I were to just say, I can't change them. Neither can they change me. And if I knew what I ought to be, and I don't, I would be that thing, and I'm not there yet. And they're not there yet either. What if we just loved each other, prayed for one another, and left the rest up to God? If that's Paul's strategy, I reckon that might be an okay strategy for us as well. To trust that in verse 16, we should just live up to whatever truth we've attained in our lives. That's Paul is saying that. Live up to whatever truth, whatever standard you currently have of the Gospel. Some people are going to understand its depths much more. They're going to have a much deeper, richer relationship with God and with His people. Some people are just getting started on their journey of faith. Whatever truth that the Lord has revealed to you in His good time, live according to that. That's kind of a, it's not a surprisingly generous word from the apostle. You would think he would say, here's the standard, reach it, meet it, or you're out of the the body. (laughs) But he understands, he gets it. That's why Paul can say, I've not, I've not even reached my goal. You haven't either. Whatever the Lord has revealed to you, however He's working in your life, just trust Him and be obedient to what He has shown you that far. What a freeing thing. We can relax about each other. We can be calm about each other. We don't have to constantly go around and fret and argue and plan and scheme and gossip to get each other where we think we need to go. We can just look at ourselves and say, Oh, what a mess that I am. But the Lord has taken hold of me. So we can look at the other person and say, they're a mess too, but you know what? I trust that the Lord has taken hold of them as well. Whatever truth we are grasping onto, imperfectly by the way, Paul says do the best you can to imitate him or imitate others like him and live by that example. Whether it's Paul or Timothy or Epaphroditus or Barnabas or Apollos or Peter, Whoever it is that you've learned a lot from and has been a good example to you, try strive to, to, to live like that. But notice, these are all men that fought each other in the Bible, that God didn't get along all the time, that went their separate ways. Still, 
Look to the collective example of people who are sinful and flawed and still reaching after Jesus. Christian, if you want to know who to look for as an example of Christian living, it's quite simple. Look to the men and women who see their imperfections, who see their sins and readily can admit them. Look to the people who not, do not depend on themselves, but depend on Christ's perfection, not their own attempts at goodness for salvation. If you want to know who can be your role model, find the people that know they're a sinner and say, it's only because God's grace and love that I'm accepted. That's the person you need to look for as an example. Not the person that can parse everything in the Greek lexicon. Not the person that has a discernment blog and tears everybody else down. Not the person that goes on speaking tours. Not the person that's uh, written 10,000 hymns. Look for the person who knows they're a sinner and relies exclusively on Jesus for their salvation. We are so often tempted to adore people who we see as sinless. Christian leaders who seem so confident in their doctrine uh, and their ministry. So eager to denounce other Christians they see as, as less than. But Paul weeps over this kind of religious self-righteousness. He says that people that depend on themselves, doesn't matter if they seem like their theology is great, or if they're in the right church or denomination, or read all the right books, or you know all that stuff. Paul says these people live as enemies of the cross. People who think that it's up to them. And their end is destruction. While they may claim Christ in name, their real God is their appetite, whatever it may be, their, their, their uh, physical appetite, their intellectual appetite, their social appetite, their, their emotional appetite. And their glory is in shameful things. It's in shaming others. It's in their own shame. And they are focused on earthly things. But for the Christian, for the true believer, our citizenship is not in anything we've done or anything we believe. It is according to God's time and place that is heaven when, we, when this world will finally be reunited with Him. One perfect paradise for us where Jesus is at the center of it all. And just as Jesus has been transformed from His earthly body to a perfect, resurrected, spiritual yet material body, so can we expect by His same power Verse 21, that we will be transformed to. (laughs) We're not what we will be. We're not what we ought to be. But we can rely on His power to make us like Him. The humble, flawed, imperfect bodies and minds and hearts and souls and wills that we all have, we will be transformed like Jesus into His own glorious life. We too, even us, will experience the awesome Glorious power of God's resurrection in His own person. The same power, Paul says, that God gave to Jesus not only to raise Him from the dead, but to put everything in subjection under His feet to Him and His infinite authority and love and justice and mercy and grace. That is the power 
that will one day transform us. This is the future. That is the future. That's the reality and the life towards which we should be striving. A one where Jesus defines everything. He's the standard for everything. And Paul, just like the rest of us, is humbly, imperfectly, desperately, longingly reaching towards that. (laughs) When Paul is so focused on Jesus, and when we're so focused on Jesus, we don't have time to focus on what we're not doing uh, perfectly or how they're not doing right because we're all striving together after Jesus. It doesn't matter how imperfect we are. It doesn't matter how immature in the knowledge of God and Christ we are. It's not about who we are or what we've done or what we've left undone. It's about what Jesus has done for us and who He is for us. Christian, the sooner you embrace this and believe it, the freer you'll be in this life. And so in closing, Paul tells us, his dearly beloved sisters and brothers in Christ, he calls them and us my joy and my crown. (laughs) He looks at a bunch of ragtag, ignorant, backbiting, hypocritical Christians and doesn't see them for what they are in themselves. He calls them His joy and His crown for how Jesus sees them and what Jesus will make them. What if we looked at... I wish we had that kind of sight. That God would give us the apocalyptic vision to strip away the way the world sees us and that we would see each other and ourselves as how Jesus sees us. Paul sees them and us as people who delight Him because of who they are in Christ. And that will be His crowning achievement. That will be His joy and His crown. Not His work, not His resume, but the people who He was able to love in the name of Jesus Christ. Christian, that's going to be your joy and crown. Not all the religious rites that you've done, not all the theological uh, inquiries you solved, but the people that you've loved in Jesus' name. And all together, at the end of all things, those who love Jesus because they have first been loved by Jesus will cast their crowns before His feet of a resurrected Lord. And in this manner, and in this humble trust in Christ alone, not in ourselves, not in anything else but Him, Paul concludes, Christians and that, namely in Jesus, stand firm. Let's pray. Lord, while we live our remaining life between the cross and the past and the crown and the future, help us to trust not in ourselves or our works, but in the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Preserve us to our own resurrection that we may give You all the glory for who You are and what You've done. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.